and we came up with a show that was um, had three different stories, not interwoven, just act one, act two, act three. And it was Mad Max, James Bond, and Indiana Jones. Hmm. And we showed it to, to Eisner, and he said, it's great. He said, but if you only did one, which one would you do? I said, well, they're going to keep making James Bond movies till after Jesus comes. Mad Max is probably the, the least viable of the three. But I said, you know, they've done two Indiana Jones movies. Now, this is how long ago this is. They've already done two Indiana Jones movies, and there's, <laughs> there's rumors they're going to do a third one. Well, here we are, 29 years later, and they're talking about a fifth Indiana Jones movie. That when and if they do it, Harrison Ford will be older than Sean Connery was right. in the fourth movie. <laughs> yeah. So it'll be, uh, you know, Indiana Jones and the wheelchair of doom. <laughs> and, um, or it'll be him walking through a park with a baby stroller and his wife sitting in the stroller. Did I say that out loud? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we proudly present our spectacular show, a podcast magic and imagination full of Disney wonder, news, and pop culture. It's the Main Street Electrical Podcast with Jim Novotny and David Dollar. Well, hey, Jen. Well, hey, Dave. Hey, it's the Main Street Electrical Podcast. Main Street Electrical Podcast. I think we're on episode like 20 or something, which is I think. Crazy. I'm kind of losing track right now. I know. So I had to look at my phone real quick, and I'm like, which episode are we on? Because I'm so used to numbering the episodes in the old system, and I'm like, oh, it's episode 20? 20, 20, I don't even know where we're uh, Like, I don't know. And plus, like, we've done a lot of recording recently, so I'm like, I don't know what number we're on. In 20 <laughs> weeks, you got to hang out with me. Yay! Yeah, yay! Yay! The joy is overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> Something's overwhelming. <laughs> so, hey, how did you Disney this week? Wow. Um, so, since we most recently recorded, um, I Disneyed by purchasing something from DisneyStore.com. You I purchased back, a mug. The Haunted Mansion one? Uh, well, that I can't get yet. I oh, tried. Gotcha. Um, because, well, I tried to have Tara get it for me when she was in the parks because. I'm an AP, and I would like my discount on that. No, but I'm I ordered... an AP, finger in the ear. I mean, maybe. Yes. yes, I'm going to be no, but I ordered my bag the... while I'm over eating over it. The... I mean, maybe at Victoria and Albert's, what? Yes, of course. Um, no, I ordered a mug. I ordered the Big Thunder mug for Brady. Good times. Yeah, Good times. So, so, so this morning, early this morning, around 5 a.m., because I am mm-hmm. Central Time, I got to do dining for a client. I haven't done dining what? in three months. And just like clockwork, it was a dumpster fire. Dining didn't work. The login didn't work. There was nothing available. I had two browsers open. Plus, I, my wife reminded me, oh, guess what? I guess our dining is today, too. So we're jumping on doing our dining as well. <laughs> you know, uh, we have a party of nine. Uh, the client I had was a party of nine as well. So we're breaking up, you know, reservations in the party mm, of five. Like fours four. and fives. You know, and... we're doing, we got to be our guests for Thanksgiving dinner for the client. That's like huge. Four and four or five, which is nice. But then they have, I think, a, a Topolino's for dinner at like five and seven. And just, okay. it's, you know, nothing worked. And it was great. It was like normal. I felt like, oh, this is so nice. It's like a dumpster fire again. And it, things are just back to normal. Just and that just feels so good. Just for a second. Everything felt normal and it was great. 
Because <laughs> nothing worked. It was precedented times. Right? I miss precedented times. I like precedented times. <laughs> oh, precedented times. Okay, so our show today, we did an interview back in episode two, which was, if you do the math hashtag, hashtag mathing, 18 episodes ago, uh, we talked to McNair Wilson. He is a former Imagineer with Disney, and he worked for Disney for, for a couple of years and did some great stuff. He had a hand at Disney Springs, or actually downtown Disney at the time, had a hand in uh, several attractions, including Tower of Terror, which we love Tower of Terror. Yeah. conversation lasted like two and a half hours, so we knew that we could yes. not into one show it was just too much because we had just started we couldn't trust you find people that listen to us for two and a half hours because you might do it now i don't know but i knew you wouldn't do it back then so jen and i decided let's break this up into two so we held on to it and we had some great guests this summer mm-hmm. we talked to that panda we've talked to christine we talked to author uh chris smith we've talked to just you know skywalking and imagineers and so many guests over the summer and mm-hmm. you and i've had great conversations over the summer had a great summer podcast and the geeks we talked to the geeks. and the geeks the geeks were great we still yeah I, I there was so much fun guys every couple of times we're gonna get we're gonna get all these people back on again yeah um, totally plus it's got some great guests coming up we got stacy from us do coming up must do disney uh we got one of the disney voices one of my favorite disney voices coming up yeah, as well so in October. we got uh we got a guy from another a very very huge disney podcast coming yes. on our show we're excited <laughs> about that some former cast great stuff but we decided let's go ahead and knock the rest of this interview out with McKinney. absolutely so what you're going to hear we're going to kind of jump into the conversation and if it sounds like you're going into the middle of a conversation it's because you are um because we had to slice it kind of down the middle but mcnair is going to be telling us about tower of terror kind of how it was developed where it came how does mel brooks the comedian and legendary director fall into this whole thing how does the zucker brothers from airplane fall into tower of terror so all about that we'll be talking about brainstorming kind of ideas and central and maybe jen you can get some great ideas for how in the world you get keep me in line with all my paper um mm. we'll be talking a little bit about phantasmic you can tell the mcnair is not a big fan yeah. of phantasmic he has a few fun things to say about that and adventurous club will kind of touch on that we'll talk to him the dinosaur hey. club some great conversations coming up so we're going to go to that now the second part of our interview with McNair Wilson from May. And remember, this is May. The parks aren't open yet. We're in the middle of the pandemic. We don't have any idea when things are open. So I don't know. We may say some stuff like, oh, the parks probably will be open in June. We don't know. And so that'll, <laughs> that'll be in there somewhere. But, uh, but listen up. Enjoy this conversation. And we'll see you guys on the other side. Opening day rehearsals, 33 streetmosphere characters. And I said, gangs, the idea that Disney has hired 33 improv actors in, in a $600 million theme park makes about as much sense as if the Chrysler Corporation were to buy Sid and Marty Cross puppet shows. It's <laughs> <laughs> so true. I said, if you're here in five years, we will have created a miracle. I said, I think I had a, have a pretty good idea. So does all of Disney, including Michael Eisner. Mm-hmm. Try not to disappoint. The fact that it's still there is delightful. They're not doing street atmosphere. They're doing street theater. Mm-hmm. Right. It doesn't make any sense. There's no place in Hollywood, California, where you would go and see people standing in the middle of the street mm-hmm. with a microphone telling jokes. So it's, <clears throat> it's the exact opposite of what I'd hoped for, but it's, they're still there. Because in between, you don't find them. If you count no. right. 10 actors standing up there telling jokes, that means when this show is over a half hour from now, there will be at least an hour or more of empty Hollywood Boulevard or empty sunset. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas it was designed so that from opening to closing, you would be bumping into these characters. When I was there in 
it was, I think it was my, it was the year of my honeymoon. So it would have been 2006. And I remember um, distinctly, and I have a photo with her and I wish I could remember which one I was interacting with, but um, on, we were, we were actually on Sunset Boulevard and she stopped me and like, she knew my name. Meanwhile, I was wearing a button. I forgot. I was wearing a button ah. with my name on it. Um, <laughs> but I was like, what? <laughs> and I just had like the best interaction with one of these citizens of Hollywood. Um, she was literally delightful and it really just enhanced the whole experience. I just, I have so to much say, I, they're just a ball. Yeah. <laughs> so couple early on, one of my characters was, um, was uh, a maid to the stars and we put her at the break area at the backlot tour. So there were some tables there and some fast food and so on. And she was in just this white maid's outfit and she'd go around and she had all this food coloring water that she'd be cleaning things and she'd say, are you hot? And if people were hot, she'd spray them in the face, this fine mist. So one day she goes up to this older lady and her friend and sprays her in the face and then says, are you hot? And ladies, oh, kind of startled. Well, I get a call that one of my characters had splashed water into the face of Mrs. Frank Wells. Oh. I said, that doesn't sound oh, good. No. And what had happened is on the, on the company jet going home from Orlando, Mrs. Wells told the story about one of these characters. And she's telling it in the light of how delightful and funny and weird it was. She said, she didn't know who I was. She just squirted water on me. It was very refreshing. And I patterned, do my friend and so on. So I had to call Mrs. Wells and apologize. And she said, I hope you didn't get in trouble for this. I said, that's why I'm calling you, ma'am. That is hilarious. She says, well, that's not what that was about. <laughs> and then she got mad, told her husband, he got mad, and he called me and apologized for me having to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> so I had they to, told I, your boss. I had to go to that actress. Her nickname was Sarge. And we used what was real in each person's life. She was a, she was a big John Wayne fan. You could not stump her with the John Wayne trivia. Huh. And, uh, and I just said, here's what you do. You spray it. Spray yourself first. Oh, it feels so good. Would you like a little? And then you'd spray them very lightly. And if they wanted more, then you'd move in for more. So all these little little things that you learn. Love it. Wow. I love it. Because um, I, I, yeah, I have two more questions for you, McNair. Um, first, it, well, actually three. First, obviously, we want to get to the Tower of Terror because Jen's excited about the Tower of Terror. Yes. I told her that you, I am. You're, I feel you're, like I'm being so quiet. You're, no, it's okay. Your, your development of the Tower of Terror. And she was just giddy because we all love yeah. the Tower of Terror. Um, Adventurous Club, we're going to get to, but I think that might be an episode to, to its own later on down the road because we'll just we'll just keep you having you come back uh but we definitely okay. want to talk tower of terror just how how did that That's come like to be what i love it what, tower of terror let's talk about that um there's a thing called a year to the day or a year out mm -hmm. which on any big project an attraction a new park we have a uh, a review standing over the model and the art artists conceptual art and so on with the powers that be and that could be a dozen people it could be 50 people from the studio depending on who michael invites and so the the year out for disney mgm studios was the white model and there were some things that we'd taken out there was a there was a um a stunt show that was all a silent movie set up mm -hmm. and and so on and while i was still consulting um and at SAC, they said, we want to do some kind of a big, we need to do one for capacity and two, because we need to do it. We need to do some big live, like, 
Universal does, uh, or the Miami Vice, I forget all the different versions they've done mm -hmm. of their big outdoor stunt show. And so at SAC Theater, I convened my, my brain trust, and we came up with a show that was, um, had three different stories. Not interwoven, just act one, act two, act three. And it was Mad Max, James Bond, and Indiana Jones. Hmm. And we showed it to, to Eisner, and he said, it's great. He said, but if you only did one, which one would you do? I said, well, they're going to keep making James Bond movies till after Jesus comes. Mad Max is probably the, the least viable of the three. But I said, you know, they've done two Indiana Jones movies. Now, this is how long ago this is. They've already done two Indiana Jones movies, and there's, <laughs> there's rumors they're going to do a third one. Well, here we are, 29 years later, and they're talking about a fifth Indiana Jones movie. That when and if they do it, Harrison Ford will be older than Sean Connery was right. in the fourth movie. <laughs> yeah. So it'll be, uh, you know, Indiana Jones and the Wheelchair of Doom. <laughs> And, um, <laughs> or it'll be him walking through a park with a baby stroller and his wife sitting in the stroller. Did I say that out loud? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, oh, very thin stroller. So, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, tiny, tiny. It's a two-wheeler. <clears throat> and I said, I think we could have fun with the Indiana Jones thing. And so we proceeded down that vein. And, and we came up with the idea that to make it work and not have to have it all stitched together in a seamless storytelling little mini drama that it was you were watching a movie being made you're watching scenes mm. being shot so we'd have all these extras and and uh, a director and a production designer and that was a chance then also to get audience participation which michael loved and it's so that's how that part of <laughs> yeah that's how that was born yeah and the cast there is under strict orders never to pick me um <laughs> Other places in the property didn't get that memo, so I've been in the show at the Diamond Horseshoe too, oh. too many times. Well, what do I do? Do I get up and really play it up, and then the audience thinks I'm a shill? Or mm -hmm. do I pretend not to be able to do anything, and then it ruins the show? Or do I go in between? You know, so anyway. Yeah, that's hard. So mm -hmm. we knew we, when we showed Michael, here's the park, when we open in a year, I mean, we'd broken ground, and we're building it. And he says, that's not a lot. And then somebody said, it might've been Lynn, the aforementioned Lynn Maser. She said, yes, but with those six attractions, it'll take you close to three hours to see everything because of, I mean, the great movie ride is longer than any ride, long, longer than Pirates yeah. of the Caribbean at Disneyland, which is the longest of all the pirate rides in the world. Right. So on and so on. Well, 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 what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And they said, well, we need to... And Marty says, obviously, we need to start thinking about a phase two and what that would be. And very quickly, the idea came that, would have been, that it would be a street, not a land, but mm -hmm. a street. Off, to the, off this direction, obviously, Sunset Boulevard was the best name for it. Well, it's like a mall. If you open a mall with three anchor stores and you add a wing, you need an anchor for that wing. Mm -hmm. The word anchor at Imagineering is weenie. Right. Each land has a weenie, and all that is just something to get your attention. So whether it's Big Thunder Mountain or you know Space Mountain, is you know a lot of mountains. Mm -hmm. And um, and that was the other thing we did when we were when we were renaming everything generically. We had Cowboy Mountain, so on and so on. Yeah. 
Um, and when you think about it, Space Mountain is a generic name and probably was that. They said, we need to do something in Tomorrowland that's a mountain, a Space Mountain of some sort. And they never bothered to give it a, a fun, fun name. Doesn't matter now, I guess. Um, which, by the way, is the best ride in any Magic Kingdom if they would just do one thing, turn the work lights on yeah. and let you ride it that way. It's terrifying. It's really and I wrote a proposal one. I wrote a proposal one time that every day of the year that any Magic Kingdom is open that has a Space Mountain, for the last two hours, they turn the lights on and they go, and, and it's called, um, oh, anyway, it's Space Mountain. Lights on is the subtitle, but the main title is something like, you know, Destiny's Disaster or <laughs> know, exploding, the Exploding Universe. And the only thing you would add to it is industrial sounds of things being filed and sparked. Oh, my God. <laughs> and park, park operations didn't want to do it because it's, it's ugly, it's dirty. And I said, that's the charm, that's the charm. People would love it. And anytime I would totally you, write it. If you mentioned any cast member who's read, who's gone on space mount with the lights and they go oh oh it's terrifying yeah it is it's crazy <laughs> i would love that well I you would put your hand you don't want to put your hands up because you're afraid your hands are gonna get chopped off especially with all the metal around well, you. you think that now but you turn the lights on and you really you you want to duck yeah exactly yeah um, i've done that with the lights on it's like ah it's terrifying <laughs> yeah so so marty said not at that meeting but days later he said why don't you put your your goof your 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 team of goofballs together and work on some possibilities for the end of Hollywood Boulevard for the weenie. And I had done a presentation. They were constantly using Imagineering. They, the studio was using Imagineering as a lure, as bait uh, uh, to get celebrities to move their little production crews over to the studios. And one of those teams was the Zucker brothers and their movie Airplane. Hmm. Oh, so I put nice. together my, my handful of favorite goofballs, who I called the knuckleheads, <clears throat> and we put together an, uh, a ride based on the movie Airplane. And it was basically, you go to the airport, you weave, the line weaves in and out of the traffic, then you have to check in, then you get a boarding pass and all this stuff and so on. And when you finally get on the plane, it's, it's it, you, um, there's a thing in, in filmmaking called poor man's blah, 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 special effects. So if you want to put people in an airplane and there's turbulence, you can build a big piece of machinery that rocks back and forth, like some of the stuff that, or gimbal they call it, mm -hmm. uh, like some of the things that Stanley Kubrick built for the revolving space station in 2001 Space Odyssey mm -hmm. and so on, so on, so on, so on. Yeah. What we did was you're sitting inside this set of a plane and outside you see guys with, with big, I was going to say sticks, but they're big, long things that they're holding. And they're making the plane rock back and forth. Mm. And they're getting rained on and they're, they're dripping wet and so on, so on, so on. Oh well, it was hilarious, but it was a $200 million ride. And we hadn't done a $200 million ride. And everybody remembering that said, get that, get the airplane team together, the knuckleheads. And Marty says, have you guys had your first meeting yet? No. He said, well, Michael Eisner's got a friend he wants to work you to work with on that like okay great and then we figure it's probably some filmmakers clever script writer a funny guy or something that he just wanted to stick in there and we're always open to new voices so we're sitting in marty scalar's own private little conference room he had next to his office that 
that comfortably sat six or eight or ten around a table and so on. And it's us waiting for Michael. And it's like, who is this going to be? And Michael Eisner walks in with Mel Brooks. Michael was Michael was six foot three, and Mel was about three foot six. Like Mel still is three foot six. Um, He's probably down to three four now. He's little guy. And we all agreed later, the knuckleheads, that the day Mel Brooks walked into that room with us, which is probably the smallest room and the most famous people I've ever been with, other than me and Mr. Disney alone. So, Mel, I'm sorry, you're, you're number two on that list. Um, <laughs> we all agreed later that that was the best day of our lives. And from, from that day on, the rest of our lives was going to be disappointing. And so, uh, what are we doing? What are we doing? He said, Michael says, well, we're working on a new, and turns out Mel and his son, Max, love Disneyland. And, uh, and he said, we're working on a you know, new addition to Disney MGM Studios. And um, we're thinking that maybe at the end of it, our new ride would be a Mel Brooks ride of some sort. And he introduced the, the team and he introduced me and, 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 um, and I said, no, Mr. Brooks, I said, he says, call me Mel. And he stretched his arms out like I'm Mel. And I said, guys, and they all went Mel with their arms outstretched. <laughs> <laughs> and we worked with him for several months, and anytime anybody had a question, they'd say, I have a question for Mel, and they stretched their arms out. And he loved it. He'd just get a little, little giggle, and he'd nod. He goes, yes, yes, my son, yes. <laughs> and I said, so we'll call you Mel. And he said, that'd be good. And he comes over to me, and he starts beating, beating on my chest, and he says, and what do I call you? Because I didn't have a name tag on. I always wore <clears throat> a safari jacket or sport coat or something that I put my name tag on, but because it had big pockets, so I had all my art supplies. All right. And I said, no, you'll have to call me Mr. Wilson. So we did. <laughs> Fast forward many years. That was 1989, maybe. We opened in May. Yeah, it would have been fall of 89 after the Disney MGM Studios opened. And I'm, it's the early 90s, and I'm in New York for one of my annual bivouacs to get my fill of theater. So I see one show a day for a week, sometimes two in a day. That's awesome. And I'd go on to a preview of... The producers, the musical. Ah, uh, yeah. Not yet open, but getting ready to open. Loved it. And I'm sitting two nights later at a place called Charlie's on 42nd Street, where all the actors and people go. And in comes late Matthew Broderick with his retinue of friends. And then Nathan Lane was his retinue of friends, which included Bette Midler. And I thought, ah, I've met her. Next. And, um, <laughs> and then there was this commotion at the front door, and I thought, oh, please, God, let it be Mel. <clears throat> and in fact, it was. So Mel and his retinue were ushered back to the back of the restaurant to the chef's table by the kitchen that, where they put celebrities because you, you, there would be no reason to go there unless you were a waiter going into the kitchen. So I thought, well, at some point, he'll get up and go over and see those guys at their tables, and I'll stop him. So I'm sitting drawing and I stand up, just boom, right in front of him. Waited to the last possible minute. And I said, and I stretched my arms and I said, Mel. And he goes, yes. And he stretched his arms, wait, wait. And he comes over to me and starts slapping my face, grabbing me, <laughs> holding my head. This face, I know this face, I know this face. And I said, Disney Imagineer, he goes, Mr. Wilson, <laughs> how are you? I said, great. 
he said, come and meet the kids. So I go over with him to say hi to Matthew Broderick and so on. Then he says, now, come and meet the little lady. Do you know who Mel Brooks' wife is? She's no longer with us. But you know who his, who his wife was? I used to know this. And I, if you ever saw The Graduate, Mrs. Robinson and Bancroft. Oh. And Bancroft. And Bancroft. That's right. Yep. I mean, as serious a dramatic actor as ever lived. But as it turns out, a pretty silly lady. Um, <laughs> get their movie to be or not to be. And you'll see her at her comedic best. But she also, okay. you know, played... played um, in the Miracle Worker about Helen Keller, she she played and um, Sullivan. Okay. The teacher. Yep. Yep. Yep, anyway. yep. So we're standing there at the table, and there she is, and I'm I am more nervous than when I met Mel, because she's every bit as alluring <laughs> as I'd hoped she would be, and then some. <laughs> and I was so 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 thankful that I'd put on pleated slacks that day. But anyway, I um sh- did I say that out loud? You did. She says, edit. Edit. <laughs> she says any any. This is Mr. Wilson, she said. The imaginary Mr. Wilson? I said, yes, ma'am. She says, oh, let me tell you. He was never, ever in a better mood than the days he spent, and this is her word, than the days he spent with you boys over at Disney Imagineering. And I said, well, you know, the only reason I was ever nice to this guy was I thought maybe someday I'd get to meet you. And she grabbed me and said, sit down, sailor, and gave me a big kiss on the cheek. <laughs> and I have a birthmark on that cheek that I say, that's her lipstick. It was kind of a brownish color. <laughs> I haven't washed that spot since. I put a Band-Aid on before every shower. I love it. <laughs> but we, we were brainstorming with Mel. And I said, and I said you know, that very first day, I said, Mel, imagine you were going to make a Mel Brooks movie. But instead of celluloid and light, we're going to use steel and concrete, and all the special effects of a theme park from Pepper's Ghost. He says, what's Pepper's Ghost? So I explained Pepper's Ghost to him. I said, that's how the dancing ghosts are done in the Haunted Mansion. Mm-hmm. And, and I, Eisner was sitting there. He said, what do, we, what do we mean? I don't know this. Pepper's Ghost. <laughs> and I looked at Marty like, does he really not know him? Marty says, tell him. So I explained to him how the dancing, dancing ghosts are done in the ballroom. And he didn't know. I said, you know, Michael, if you want to, I said, you should find somebody who's like a salaried employee that could take you on one of the backstage tours of Disneyland. He says, I've never done that. Are they any good? What? Yeah. So he, had no, he had no idea. He said, I said, they're holograms. I said, the biggest hologram in the world is about 10 inches tall. It's been that tall since I've been in high school. Because huh. of the technology, you can't do full size. Anyway, so we're explaining to Mel, we're going to do a Mel Brooks movie. Now, he said, the other, the other thing to understand is the rules of Disney and Gem Studios. We decided to do a behind-the-scenes park. So when you go on the great movie ride, which he had been on, and I said, if you're in the Munchkin Village, it's the Munchkin Village for all its glory. But if you look up, you don't see the sky. You see the top of the soundstage, and you see the lights, and you see the backdrop tied to the rigging. Whereas if you look up in the big room in Pirates, you see sky. You see a completely covered, shrouded ceiling. So it's sky. Mm-hmm. So we're doing the behind the scenes, the making of on, on everything. So you want to say, we'll come up with a story or this or that. And so I said, we may not end up doing as much as we, w- we would probably all love to, Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein or, you know, High Anxiety, whatever. We'll do pieces of it. Now, Universal, what they did with Universal Studio was they did the Disneyland 
of the movies. So when you go on the King Kong ride at Universal, you're going on a theme park ride that tells the King Kong story. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed right. to be immersed in that. Right. 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 We decided not to, to go a different direction. So everything is peeking behind the veil. Hmm. And, and so whatever it is, we'll come up with. So we, we came up with all these different ideas. And one day I said, you know, one of the other projects I'm working on is a group of people that are designing a theme park to be next to the main gate of the Disney MGM Studios. And it's going to be a high-end Art Deco 1930s Hollywood Hotel, the Hollywood Tower Hotel. Hmm. And I said, I put together a whole day of, um, of deco in LA that we went with that team and saw all these different famous art deco buildings and ended up at this famous hotel and we're having dinner out of the veranda that's been used in movies. And one of the guys says, he said, McNair, almost a perfect day. And I said, what's missing? <clears throat> and he said, if we could all have spent the night here. And I signaled the maitre d' and I said, we're ready for dessert. And our dessert was brought out by our spouses and significant others. Mm. And as they're clearing dessert, they handed us room keys. Oh, oh nice. Oh. So we're working on this. And, and the, the hotel would have been the nicest hotel at Disney World to the state because, but I said, what if, Mel, and that, that hotel would be right at the entrance to Disney Engine off to the side. I said, what if one end of this hotel was the original old Hollywood Tower Hotel, but it's deserted, it's haunted, something happened. He said, like, what? I said, I don't know. We'll, we'll brainstorm that. So the next meeting he came and I brought in one of those little bells, you know, that you sit on the counter, ring bell for service. And we just went around the table brainstorming. What, what could that be? Cause I, cause I told him, I said, no, we've looked at all your movies. We have gone back and looked at every one of your movies and we all have our favorites. Um, one of my favorite moments was when Steve Kirk of the Kirk brothers, Steve and Tim, they did, uh, um, they did a park that I had begun the design of, uh, that was going to be all about the water and the oceans. It was going to be in Long Beach next to the Spruce Goose and Queen Mary. And when Long Beach said, oh, we just don't want to have Disney in downtown Long Beach or not. And Eisner said, then screw you. And so <laughs> they built it in Tokyo and that's Disney Seas. That's why oh, there's wow. a ship there because of that, Queen Mary. Okay. That, ship, that ship is a building sitting on a cement block with water around it. And every day at every meal service, someone will complain to their sir, and the waiters are trained to say, I will go and we'll, we'll call the captain. We have some road levelers. We can smooth that out. That boat at Disney Seas doesn't rock any more than the building all three of us are sitting in right now. Oh, that's But because wonderful. it's surrounded by water, people, you know, my wife and, uh, don't like a boat or rocking. <laughs> and I still haven't been to that theme park. And every Imagineer I know, that's their favorite mm. theme park. <laughs> anyway, so I said, as much as we would all love to do farting cowboys of the Wild West, we don't think uh, that, that, that the bean scene is enough of a ride. I said, plus we're doing the behind the scenes of. Mm-hmm. So what, we, what we've thought about is saying to you, we'd like to do something for which our muse, our inspiration is young Frankenstein. So some sort of a haunted something or other may or may not be Frankenstein's castle. Mm-hmm. And, and we had all kinds of big bits and little bits, including <clears throat> anytime a, a, somebody on the loading dock was male and the person taking you through was female, she said, okay, you can go now. And she, and she would turn to the guest and say, I don't like him. He was my boyfriend. <laughs> we broke up. <laughs> we don't get along anymore. He was 
my boyfriend. <laughs> so all these little things that we we're going to steal. And I said, but we think we ought to just do something that's a funny, scary, the Mel Brooks something. Mm-hmm. So what if it was this haunted old hotel? The Mel Brooks Hollywood Horror Hotel was the working title. And as Mel would say, say horror slowly or it's no longer a family ride. <laughs> oh. So I began to nickname it and we were within moments of, of doing this. Uh, team Jackets had said Hotel Mel. Hmm. And so okay. I, I think there are still places online where you can Google Hotel Mel. Cause there used to be a whole website, towerofterror.org, and it's gone. It had an interview with me and all kinds of other things, early huh. drawings. The, the drawing that's in Hatch that says Tower of Terror on it was a drawing that Tim Kirk did, Steve Tim Kirk did, sitting in a meeting. I added the words Tower of Terror because at the time that was not the title, but that he did early on to say this is what it will be like. So we just went around the table kind of brainstorming. What would happen? You go into this haunted hotel and everything's there, but it's like everybody got raptured or whatever, and there's cobwebs mm-hmm. on the table and there's luggage and so on and so on. And uh, the elevator doesn't work, so you end up down in the steam room. You get the service elevator. Now, so why is the service elevator? I said because it's got a chain door, so you can see every floor as you're going by, and you do this and this and this, and we're going around each person just adding a little bit. And finally somebody, and it wasn't me that said this, because I would definitely take credit for it if it did. You get to the top and the elevator shakes and rattles and the door opens and it comes out of the shaft and goes down the hall. And there was a sudden silence. There you go. That's it. So I put the words Tower of Terror in there because Steve or Tim did that when we were just sitting around. And and it shakes and goes down the hall. And and Mel turned and he said, we could do that. And I said, well, I know a guy. He said, you know a guy? His name is Jack. He was head engineer on, on the first Space Mountain. And if anybody could take an elevator out of the shack, that day I went to lunch with these guys. And in a series of napkins, we really do doodle and invent and so on and napkins. On a, on a future episode, ep, a visit to, to your world, I'll tell you about how we design um, Backlot Express restaurant. Oh, that's a deal. It yeah, was going to be a hot dog stand. Yeah, that's went awesome. went from a hot dog stand to what it is. But it's a series. It's three people and a stack of napkins. And, and it was Richard Vaughn who did Cat Canyon. And Bob Weiss, who was head of the Disney MGM Studios design team, is now president of Imagineering. One of mm-hmm. my favorite people at Imagineering, among several dozen favorite people. Um, he's one of my 50 top three favorites. Anyway, he... Uh, <laughs> um, we said it goes down the hall and, blah, blah, blah. and can you do that? So, so I'm telling this, that these guys that and so on. So I grabbed the salt shaker from the little table <clears throat> and I said, we're going up and up and up. And it kind of rattles the road and the door open and it comes out and it goes down the hall and I moved the, sh- the shaker across the table. And he was about to take a bite of his, I think it was a pastrami sandwich, the now, the now famous Jack. Mm-hmm. And he says, and then what happens? And takes a bite. I said, and he said, and then what happens? Like, Okay, you take the elevator out of the shaft and go down the hall. He said it so matter-of-factly, it was like I'd asked them months ago and they'd been working on it and they had a, you know, printouts and diagrams and, and all the mathematical and engineering formulas to make this elevator shaft come out of the hall. And they just heard the idea. I mean, all they knew is that Mel Brooks was in the middle. Oh, yeah, he really is here? Yeah, yeah. What's he like? I said, hilarious, brilliant. Um, Decorous. I mean, he 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 listens well. 
Mm. At, at one point early on, he said, you guys are trying to be funny. I'll do funny. You do scary. Cause I, oh my God. <laughs> cause I told him the ideas. And the, the very next day he says, you know, come to think of it, you guys are pretty funny. And I said, how did you figure that out? He says, I told my son some of your ideas. And he and my wife said, those guys are pretty funny. So he says, you can do funny too. And I said, in that case, you can do scary too. The thing, the thing I never told him is we also went, looked at a lot of other horror films. And we thought, you know, Young Frankenstein is a very funny movie. It's mm -hmm. hardly at all scary. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Great movie. Abbott and Costello it. Meet Frankenstein is the best funny, scary movie. Oh, wow. that's a great movie. It's terrifying. So then Jack says, and I'm still holding the salt shaker, he said, how are you going to get him back down to the ground? I said, I didn't know I could get him out of the elevator shaft. Well, what do you want to do? And on the spot, I said, well, I'll tell you what I'd like to do. He goes, what? And I took, I said, I'd like to do a Roadrunner. And one of the other guys goes, well, that's perfect. Roadrunner is the name of a bit. Roadrunner and Coyote mm. are running through the desert. And they come yeah. to a cliff. Roadrunner goes off the cliff. He's fine because he's a bird. Coyote follows Roadrunner off the cliff. He gets about three feet off the cliff. And he realizes, I'm not a bird. He looks around, looks below. Then he falls. Delayed yes. drop. So I took the salt shaker, I moved it off the edge of the table, and I said, oops, and I dropped the salt shaker. And two or three of the guys it. said, that's good. I like it. I love it. That's good. Jack says, how tall is this hotel? And I said, well, it's going to be a high-end hotel. We're thinking, I don't know, four or five stories, maybe six. We could stretch it. I don't know. Because mm -hmm. it's going to be all suites, 24-hour valet service if you want. Fettuccine Alfredo at 4 in the morning if you want. Your left shoe shined at 7 a.m. and your right shoe shined at <laughs> 2 in the afternoon. <laughs> it's going to be for the ultimate, ultimate guest. Because we had those guests. And if you give them the nicest yeah. room at the Grand Floridian and they find out there's a nicer room, they want that room. Right. They're not showing off. They just yep. want the best accommodations available. Yep. We love those sure. guests. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, I just want to be at the Caribbean beach so I can be eight steps from my bed when I park my car. <laughs> at the Grand Floridian, I, you know, I'm a day and a half walk to my bed. That's very true. It's a long parking lot. Go the, go I'll show the if you're in the villas. <laughs> yeah, go to the lobby and listen to the piano player, any one of whom is probably a friend of mine. You know, it's Chris from the hoop you do. I do the hoop you do at night. In the daytime, I go to the lobby of the hoop. Anyway. So he says, how tall is this going to be? I said, six or eight stories. He goes, that's not scary. I said, I know. I said, 10 stories. And he, again, punches me in the front of my shoulder on the, on the Walt Disney spot. <laughs> you know, I'm going to write a book. I call, uh, I became Imagineering by getting poked in the shoulder a lot. Anyway, um, so I'm thinking, okay, Mel Brooks Horror Hotel. Horror, horror. I said, how about 13 stories? And Jack says to one of the guys, how tall can we go there? Well, I think you know, but maybe not all your listeners know, the tallest building you can build, you can you can build a 100-story building at Disney World if you want to. Mm -hmm. But after, I think it's 10 stories, you have to put this big stick with a blinking light and a radar thing like on the end of it. 200 feet mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah, 200 yeah. and some yeah. for... Yeah. So the yeah. castle is 180 feet, 189 feet. And a friend of mine, who I won't mention because you're not supposed to tell them that they're a character who's one of the Tinkerbells, she steps off the edge of the castle two or three nights a week at mm -hmm. 180 feet above the ground. Yep. Uh, I, actually, not above the ground because the ground is a full story below right. where you're standing. Wow. Everybody knows that secret. No, right. they don't. Um, we really need to do this with pictures so I can draw diagrams. <clears throat> and 
and and they said, tell you what, we'll make your hotel as tall as we can legally, and we'll paint it to look like 13 stories. Nice. Yes. So the very yes. first Tower of Terror in Florida, if you count the floors according to the architecture, the facade, it's 13 stories. But it's only the height of a 10-story building. Okay, that fast forward, sense. and they're building, they're building Everest. And my dear and my dear friend, and I don't say that sarcastically, Joe Rohde is standing there looking at the frame and he says to one of the engineers, says, So how tall is this thing? And he says, It's 189 feet, just like your friend's hotel at Disney MGM Studios. He says, Hmm, it's gonna be the same same height as Tower of Terror. So Joe goes up there with some guys and puts this little pointed thing on top of Everest with some snow on it. That's six inches tall. So when you next time you're there, if you look at Everest, there's this little pointy thing on the top, mm-hmm. which is geograph- uh, geologically incorrect. But that makes his dumb little mountain six inches taller than my hotel. Oh. So someday I'm going to climb, climb up on top of the Tower of Terror and add a, add a one-foot weather vane. <laughs> <laughs> Take a picture and send it to Joe. Yeah, surpassing that little kitty ride, Everest. If you can get if you can get to the top of the Tower of Terror with that, I will supply the weather vane for you. I will give you the parts. One hundred percent. Yes, one hundred percent. We'll take. I will help you install it. Yes, trust, I love trust it. me. I'll figure out a way. I love anyway, it. Anyway, when we showed them the Mel Brooks Hollywood Horror Hotel, of course they all went nuts. But <sighs> it sat undeveloped for a couple three years because it was attached to this hotel that they didn't build. If you look, at, if you go on Google Maps or any other air, where you can get an aerial photo of, of see how that hotel sits, the facade of Tower of Terror is developed on two and a half sides. The back side, which faces all the back area mm-hmm. of that park, and there's some trailers there, that's where you would imagine a hotel going from there out. Mm-hmm. The best part about that was if you built that hotel, which you still could, you would have to nuke Fantasmic, which would be a priority in my book if I were in charge of Disney World. <laughs> and people are always asking me, why don't you like Fantasmic? Well, what do we do at Disney? We tell stories. Yeah. Somebody tell me the story of Fantasmic. Right. It doesn't it exist. Have one. It's work. a string of disconnected special effects. Mickey has sparks coming out of his fingers, and then Pocahontas swoops in, and <laughs> with Nemo on his back, and, and, and uh, the six of the seven dwarfs, because the other one is, is over-saving, kissing Cinderella. It's true. It's true. I mean, it's almost like it was a story written by Six Flags. Not even Universal would have <laughs> write a story that bad. And so I have never, ever oh, gone fantastic. Mm-hmm. I saw one of the original story shows at Disneyland, that early version. And, and here's, here's how you can gauge how popular something is. And I was giving a tour of Disneyland to a group of college professor friends of mine, kind of my behind the dreams tour. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, we're going to go to the fireworks thing next out in front of the castle. I said, somebody do me a favor. Who's got to watch with a second hand on it? And when Fantasmic was over, I said, go. And we timed the applause. It was just under six seconds hmm. for Fantasmic. In front of the castle, the applause for the fireworks show was 14 seconds. Wow. Yeah. It's not one of my favorite shows either. I'll be honest with you. I rest my case, Your Honor. No, it's it's not one of my favorites. And it's so unbelievably expensive, that show. 
to, oh, I to can build, only imagine. Yeah, to build it and to do it. Now it's immensely popular. It gets people out of the park. It fills up the stands. So what? Yeah, I've I've I haven't seen it in years, and uh, it, it's a fine. It, the show's fine. I'm just not sure that I'll see it anytime soon. It's not a priority for me at all. It and it really is just, I, a, just a hey, look at all the pretty things. I all like the, the music. Things. Yeah, music is great. And when I, and so, I said great. that in a meeting one time, and I said, "You don't like Fantasmic," and I said that what I just said to you. And I said, plus, tell me about the name of the show. He said, Fantasmic. So where do we get that? And he said, well, it's fantasy. I said, well, that's... I said, that's the first part of the word. Where do we get the rest of it? He said, what do you mean? I said, where's the end of the word? And he's saying, asmic, asmic, asmic. And then all of a sudden, his eyes lit up. And he goes, oh, my God. <laughs> it's a wet dream for the whole family. <laughs> I'm sorry, you can cut that out. No, that stays in. <laughs> that definitely that was in. amazing. <laughs> that is fantastic. Oh. Um, you know, we... I'm a writer, so you know, if, if they would have asked me to help them name it, first of all, I would have said, I would say, call it canceled and do something else. <laughs> well, well, okay, I mean, so don't, not, don't hold that, your opinion why, back, Manera. We need you to tell us how you really feel about this. <laughs> well, why not use, I mean... that same, use that same space to do a big epic version of i mean why not do the lion king live i love it I with love some it. animals some other so and so, and so. Oh, that would be great at one point that space was going to be a do it was going to be a, a an original staged something or other that that michael had talked andrew Lloyd weber into doing oh, i love we had a presentation one awesome. of the show producers there was a friend of mine and i like and he says i met with andrew Lloyd weber he wants to do noah's ark but i want to do cleopatra so he proceeds to do this whole presentation about a Cleopatra show at this outdoor amphitheater with water and so on. And everybody's like, wow, that's amazing. And I said, oh yeah, you mean Cleopatra from the Disney Cleopatra movie? And I'm standing next to Marty Galar, Scalar, and he elbowed me and says, keep going, keep going. Because he knows it was a piece of junk idea. Right. And um, and so he says, well, we should, we should maybe pursue that. So he says, so nobody wants to do the Noah's Ark thing, and everybody was quiet, and Marty elbowed me, and I said, I do. My friend, the show producer, I won't say his name, because he's a good guy, very talented guy. And he said, why? And I said, well, it's not Noah's Ark, it's Andrew Lloyd Webber. Here's this press release, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Walt Disney World, dot, dot, dot. That's all you need to tell people. Mm -hmm. I said, and, yeah. and Webber will do what he always does, write two melodies, and change them into different keys, do them big, do them little, do them as a solo, do them as a duet. You know, it'll be Phantom of the Theme Park or whatever it is. But I said, plus Noah's Ark, an epical, wonderful folk, folk story that appears in all societies that have ever existed on the planet. I said, we'll get Bustamante, who does the big, famous, colorful animals to do some animals. We'll mm -hmm. build this giant ark, on and on and on and on. I said, I think it'll be fantastic. And yes, I'd be happy to direct it if, and I said the guy's name, doesn't want to. But I said, Cleopatra's a pretty body story. Uh -huh. I said, I don't know how you do Cleopatra without doing Cleopatra. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so I said they did Phantasmic and they still got that story. Anyway. Oh my so I, that's the behind the scenes. 
I do want to ask you though oh, I love it. about your new book because I want to get to that real quick because I've got a copy of Hatch here. It's Brainstorming Secrets of a Theme Park Designer and I love the whole brainstorming concept. That's what the book's about. It's mm-hmm. about brainstorming yourself, a team. I know you're a doodler and through the book, there's just tons of little sketches and I've seen you in action doodling on napkins, on papers, you know, yeah, during conferences. All the, all the do- yeah, 90% of the artwork in, in, in Hatch are doodles taken directly from 150 of my sketchbooks, very few of them are retouched. A couple of them are new. There's one of a group in the brainstorming chapter where I outline, you know, the actual, uh, towards the back, there's a group of Mm -hmm. people sitting around a table and a guy says, brown, and somebody else says, I wish I'd thought of that. (laughs) And um, (laughs) because the book exists, because I noticed when I got to Imagineering of all places, they, they have these brainstorming meetings where they weren't brainstorming. They were doing what every other company does, which I call, playful arguing with snacks on the table. So I figured out a way to keep the snacks and get rid of the arguing. You know, Jen has an idea and, and Mr. Dollar says, well, that's dumb. We tried that last year. That didn't work. By the way, David, I think you, you ought to see if you can get an interview with my friend, Roseanne Cash. I think Dollar and Cash would be a fun interview. I, I anyway. would do that in a oh, heartbeat. Yes. Yes. She's, I, w- she's, I would. I would ask her to, to, to tell me about that seven-year ache, obviously, but yes. She's, she's one of them. <laughs> used to babysit for one of my best friends. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, um, what were we talking about? Oh, uh, brainstorming. Yep. So very quickly at Imagineering, while I was still a consultant, they noticed that any team I put together got to a lot of ideas and big ideas very quickly. In fact, Marty told me one time, he said, you're the best in the early stages of a project. There it is. Yeah, so read it to us. Cause oh. I'm yeah, basically, uh, the woman at the end of the table. More ideas, everyone. And someone says, ah, brown. The next guy says, good. And the, at the end of the table, wish I'd said that. So, yeah. Yeah. So that was one of the few original pieces of art that I did for the book. And uh, it had always been a story I would tell in my workshops. And I would sit around the table and then suddenly somebody says, brown. Everybody says, oh, I wish I'd have thought of that. Um, <laughs> So they asked me, they said, Does, you know, you, you, you get to a lot of ideas quickly. Do you have a system? And so I said, yeah, it's a combination of infant sacrifice and uh, stand, standing, uh, um, infant sacrifice, silent prayer, and standing waist deep in tapioca. To which they said, how do you spell tapioca? How many peas in tapioca? In other words, they didn't care what my system was. Is it a transferable concept? Is it something that I could teach to others? Right. And so I started doing workshops through Disney University, the, train, the in-house training organ of the Walt Disney Company, on brainstorming. You know, Initially, it was the six rules of engagement. And then one day, somebody says, what's that first thing you mentioned? Is that one of the rules? Mm-hmm. No, but everybody does that. No, they don't. <laughs> so it became seven and number one is the start of fire where you let everybody know ahead of time what it is you're going to be working on. And mm-hmm. so they can think about it and come prepared, um, which you should do in every meeting. And what we don't, you know, publish an agenda. Here's what we're going to be talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm having thought about those things. Yeah. Um, when, when um, Hatch came out, there was a big article, not because Hatch came out in New Yorker magazine that a guy wrote that said brainstorming doesn't work anymore. Individuals sitting alone in their office or studio can come up with ideas just as good as they would come up with alone. Well, as good, maybe. As many, not a chance. Right. Because it multiplies. The three of us, you know, I, and this, this conversation has repeated itself probably a hundred times. I say to CEO or the vice president of sales, whoever's bringing me in, what, um, what do you usually do? 
And they said, well, we get a group of people in a room, we kick around three or four ideas for a half hour, and then we, we use the one that survived. And I said, well, first of all, there's no kicking and brainstorming. And what if in that same three, three and a half hour, instead of three or four ideas, you could come up with three or 400 ideas? How do you do that? I said, well, you could actually come up with 3,000 if you had three, four, five people, but nobody can write that fast. And so what it was was teaching people's critical thinking to get out of the way till you've got a mass of ideas to choose from. Mm. And critical mm-hmm. thinking, if you look up critical in the dictionary, it's, it's, you know, to be critical, which we know what that means, but it also means to analyze, to focus, to think with specificity, to look at a wall of several hundred ideas and say, what are our favorites up there? What are Jen's top three? Mm. And work on that, those for a while. Not, and not to spend a minute saying, well, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't know. Which ones do we like? Let's focus on that. I mean, before it was Tower of Terror, it was going to be a Bavarian village and young Frankenstein's castle and so on and so on. Right. And probably would have mm-hmm. the elevator. Mm-hmm. But it became a hotel because we were building a hotel. Mm-hmm. And it didn't get built for two or three years, didn't get pursued for two or three years because they decided not to build that half a billion dollar hotel or whatever it was going to cost. Mm-hmm. And then somebody looked at the, the rough drawings one day and they said, this thing is huge. If we just built this by itself, it would look like a full-scale old hotel. Boom. And that's when they pursued it. Hmm. Right. And Kevin Rafferty, who's did, you know, Mickey, Mickey and Minnie's uh, runaway movie ride, um, mm-hmm. took it and made it what it is today based on the, 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 the crazy stuff that the knuckleheads and I had come up with. Hmm. So they asked me one day, at, at, it's interesting because Maggie Elliott, Vice President of Creative, Entertain, Creative Development Imagineering, asked me one day, and it's interesting, Maggie Elliott, the name would mean nothing to you because that's her married name. Her maiden name was Irvine. Disneyland has a big riverboat called the Mark Twain. Yeah. Disney World has the Richard C. Irvine. Right. One of Richard C. Irvine's daughters was my friend Maggie Elliott. Okay. So she is what we call a Brahmin in the Disney world. I mean, Kevin Rafferty's dad was an anime. I mean, there's all these guys that are imagineering their background and so on. So um, Maggie said, um, Disney, Disney University, the studios called and said, wondered if they could use you to teach your brainstorming class at the studio. And I said, to Disney execs? And she says, yeah. And I said, well, I've met some of them. I'm not sure they're educable is the word we use. <laughs> but, uh, you know. Give it a shot. And Michael Eisner sent out a memo. This is pre-email, of course, early 90s. And he said, I want all of you and your top staff to take this class from my friend McNair. And Michael had actually sat through the class one time. In fact, Maggie sat through it. And she said, you know, she said, I love your system. But she says, we, not, we don't do brainstorming here that way. I said, that's why it takes us so dang long to do anything. Sure because we're all 20 minutes late for a meeting that's five minutes from our office. Then we spend 20 minutes talking about the latest movies, plays, whatever that we've just seen, new, new restaurants. Um, I mean, I've always thought that there should be a book, Imagineering's Cultural Guide to the Los Angeles area, uh, <laughs> because they know, they know what's out there. I actually put together a notebook when anybody would go on a trip, I gave them this form to fill out, uh, my favorite things that I did in Cincinnati, my favorite things I did in Minneapolis. And so to tell each other, if you're going on a business trip, what's in, what's in Minneapolis, what's the restaurant you went to in Minneapolis that you love? Hmm. What's the, you know, the little improv theater you went to and so on. It'd be a great website on an intranet. I don't know why big corporations don't do that. You know? Yes. Yeah, I go to Buenos Aires. What do I do when I get to Buenos Aires besides sit in my hotel? Don't sit in your hotel. 
right? Um, <laughs> my very first brainstorming class at the studio, there were three divisional heads there. Now, some divisional heads are vice president, senior vice president, chairman, different different names. Mm-hmm. But there were three guys. And I'd known each of these gentlemen from, from uh, project updates and so on. And they came up to me afterwards and they said, we love your class. We want you to teach our gang. Um, but... The three of us, interestingly enough, as we were talking, we're not personally creative. And I just looked at him and I said, what does that even mean? I'm not creative. And the one guy says, and these, are, these are guys who, you know, Disney at the time, 23 divisions. Each one of them ran one of those divisions. The smallest of those three divisions could have been a standalone multi-million dollar corporation. And he says, I'm not creative. I said, first of all, you're wrong and I can prove it. Secondly, you don't get to be the job you've got without having done several creative things every week. Decision-making, thinking quick on your feet. Um, the, the new hip term in the business world is agile. Mm. Um, and that may be my next book in this in the Hatch um, trilogy on, on creativity. The, the Hatch trilogy on create, creativity right now, the list is six books long. And I called a friend of mine, Richard, Letter- Richard Letterer, who's written 40 books on language. Look up Richard Letterer on Amazon and buy whatever book is there, L-E-D-E-R-E-R, Letterer. Hmm. And uh, I said, Richard, what's, what's the word for a series of books, like trilogy, but it's more than three books? And he goes, ah, very good, very good. Well, we don't actually have, in the music world, four operas would be a quartet. I said, well, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And he says, no, there's a quadro. I said, well, that sounds like some kind of dance from... Alice in Wonderland. It's actually a word made up by Lewis Carroll. Mm-hmm. And then had another word, I'll think of it in a minute, that sounded like a, an outpatient procedure at a clinic. Um, and he says, why? I said, well, you've got my book, Hatch. And he gave me a great, great quote that's in the E version. And I said, um, he said, what have you been telling people? I said, tell people Hatch is a, is a four book trilogy. He said, stick with that. Stick with that. Because given your sense of humor and, and your personalities, it'll get people's attention. Stick with that. And he said, it, he said, knowing you, it'll be more than four books. He said, look at Wrinkle in Time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't know that I can claim friendship, but certainly we were very good acquaintances. Madeline Lingle, who wrote A Wrinkle in Time. Right. <sighs> she wrote Wrinkle in Time as a standalone book that was, that was rejected by 26 publishers. 26. Wow. And there's a little paragraph in the back of Hatch uh, don't look for it. I'll tell you the page here in a minute. Uh, where I talk about rejection, and I'll probably reprint this in the new book because I have a whole chapter on fa- failure. And when I first met Madeline and showed her what became my first book, Why HWH is Not a Radio Station in Minneapolis, uh, the list is on the bottom of uh, 194 of the famous rejections, uh, Harry Potter and Chicken Soup for the Soul and so on. Yeah. <clears throat> and... And all these people who had rejected, well, Madeline Lingo was rejected by 26 publishers. And her editor said, or her agent said, well, we'll find a bunch. She says, no, don't worry about it. I've got another project I'm working on. We'll set that aside. Because it was a book, they didn't know what to do with it. Because it was futuristic. It had high math. It had time travel. It had all these things. It, mm-hmm. it just didn't fit into any of the accepted genre. Well, in 1990, finally, a friend of a friend told somebody about it. And Ferris Strauss grabbed it, and even though they didn't do books at all in that genre, they did A Wrinkle in Time, and they, they are still the one and only hardback publisher, hundred and some languages. And in wow. 1999, when Time Magazine was deciding the best stuff of the century, 
<clears throat> they made a list of the three best children's books of the 20th century, and it was Charlotte's Web, The Chronicles of Narnia, six books but seen as a single book, book mm-hmm. right? and A Wrinkle in Time. That's incredible. Take that, you stupid blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, she went on to write some other books that she thought, well, they're kind of uh, related to Wrinkle in Time. So eventually she came up with something that was called the Wrinkle Trilogy. Mm-hmm that became five books, but it's still called The Wrinkle Trilogy. So that all learned from Mr. Letterer. So Hatch, I, these guys saying, we're not creative, we're not creative. And I, one guy said, I can't draw stick figures. I said, yes, you can. Because you went to summer camp, you sat in the back of the bus, you played hangman, and you can't play hangman if you can't draw a stick figure. Next, the other guy said, well, I can't even draw a straight line. <clears throat> I said, not five minutes from where we're standing, guys, and we're at the Disney Studios. It's a place called World Supply, which was one of the top three uh, art supply stores in, in the LA area. And I don't say three to be silly and to do a callback reference, uh, but uh, just, it really was. And it's where we bought all our art supplies, Disney and so on. And I said, if you go to World Supply, they have an entire row, entire aisle of triangles, T-squares and rulers. And they sell them to really amazing artists to draw straight lines. Because no one can draw a straight line. Right. Being able to right. draw a straight line is a test for nothing. I told him, I said, I went to the Minneapolis College of Art Design on a full-ride scholarship, room, board, tuition, everything. And they never once said, oh, by the way, you can draw a straight line, can't you? <laughs> it wasn't in the application. It wasn't in the first day of class. Oh, by the way, if you can't draw a straight line, you can leave the room. And out of 124 first-year students, nobody left the room because they didn't ask that wow. question. Wow. And so I thought, well, what is creative? What does it mean to be a creative person? So I spent the next year interviewing, talking to everybody I knew and believed to be what I call actively creative so that mm-hmm. they can do on purpose things that everybody else looks at and says, oh, that's creative. Look at the way, she, look at the way Jen has done her hair today. That's kind of different. Interesting. Well, how creative is that? Or look at, this, look at this. Even things like taking a shortcut. You're on the freeway and it's backed up and you need to go from X mm-hmm. to Y. So if I go here and go here and go here, and go, that's your mind seeing the route to where you're going differently. Mm-hmm. Usually a shortcut is two things, not quicker and not shorter in terms of distance, but it is shorter in your mind and that you're solving a problem. Right. right. And so I came up with a list of habits that all creative people do. And I thought, what do I do with these things? Meanwhile, Michael Eisner's office called and Michael said, you know, we get all these requests for somebody from Disney to come and talk about creativity or tell stories. And we don't really have anybody. He says, and you know how lousy I am at speaking. I said, Michael, you're not lousy. You're just untrained and nervous. And I could help you mm-hmm. over all of that, which I subsequently did work with him on stuff on that. Cause he had speechwriters that were trying to win literary awards. They didn't listen to how he talked. Right. They didn't listen to his syntax. And you, sh- if you sit with an executive and say, what's the subject, tell me what you think on that subject, record it. Mm-hmm. write it out using his level of word choices and so on and so on. You can help them. Sure. Anyway. Um, so they said, well, we've got one now for a group and we'll have them call you. And I said, well, first you need, your office needs to call them and say, Hey, we've got a guy at Imagineering. Well, right away that opens the door uh, that, that Mike would like to recommend. And so they called me and it was a California association of police training officers, CAPTO. And these are the guys that ran police academies, anti-terrorism schools, so on and so on. Super cops. That was their nickname for themselves. And it was their annual conference in Sacramento. And I thought, I, I was married at the time. I had a practice marriage back then. And I said to my wife at the time, who was 
to the day to this day one of the cleverest people I've ever known and and, and I'd been talking her through all these things I'm discovering about creativity and all the interviews I'd done, including my dad, who was not a bit artistic, but terribly creative. At his funeral, five people spoke. Four of them were not me. All four of those gentlemen mentioned my dad's creativity. Mm-hmm. Some wow. of them had never met until the funeral. But without consulting with them, they mentioned his creativity. At the, at, at the reception afterwards, one, a couple of my friends said, I know your dad. I helped him barbecue and slept his pool for him all the time. My dad was the huck fin of grown-ups. You know, he'd let you have your steak first if you'd sweep the, the shallow end of the pool. Nice. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and he could get you to do anything and make you feel like you're serving Jesus. And he, <laughs> but he was terribly, terribly creative. An educator, ran private schools and stuff. <clears throat> and, and so they talked about his vast cre- creativity. And so I said, you know, I think maybe, maybe these cops would be a place to, they said, I said, what do you want me to talk about? They said, well, our theme for our convention is the creative edge. I said, perfect. So at the convention, I got up and did a talk that the working title of recapturing your creative spirit, the assumption being, and my basic belief being that everyone is born with natural creative tendencies that we do as children without compulsion, without encouragement, without Mm -hmm. training. Mm -hmm. Children don't say I'm going to be creative. They don't even say I'm going to play. They, they run through the kitchen grab a cookie on their way out, hit the back door and yell the word outside. And that's the international child's word for I'm going outside to play and be creative. Yep. If, if you're lucky, they yell outside. Sometimes they just go. Yeah. <laughs> fact, Correct. One, of the, one of the early now rejected titles for the new book was outside. Oh. So this, this got a standing ovation for this talk from cops did then as what I do now, gave everybody photocopy paper and colored felt pens to take notes on. 40 minutes of questions in the ballroom. And this is at a banquet, which is the hardest place to speak. I don't care if they're all your blood relatives, right. because people with their backs to you. And I said, in the introduction, would you give them all permission to turn their chair, chairs facing the stage? And, uh, and I did some logistical things that, you know, that, that, that flew in the face of how, how you set up a, being a speaker at a banquet and so on and so on. So I'm not stuck behind a podium. And um, when there's a big long table there too. Anyway, uh, it went so well. And then that, then later that night, or immediately after the banquet, up on the rooftop bar outside at the Marriott in downtown Sacramento, another couple hours of questions. And guys, men and women come over and say, "Well, I do this and this. Would that be creative?" I said, "Well, yeah, of course." And I gave them, the, I gave a lot of them, the, you know, the Disney poke. I said, "You're creative. What are you worried about?" <laughs> So I went back and I sat with the, the heads of the uh, Disney University from Imagineering and, and the studio and did about a 15-minute overview of this new talk. And at that time, there were six habits of actively creative people. And I eventually mm-hmm. boiled it down to two because two of them are sub-habits. And so I added to the brainstorming class this other class, which I would do first and then do brainstorming. And when I do mm-hmm. my day-long workshop, which is the curiosity tour, and the thing you can't do is ever announce a workshop, whether it's a standalone hour or a full day, and use the word creativity in the title. Because people will self-select and not come because, quote, I'm not creative. Why would I go to that? Right. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so everybody will admit to having a curiosity. Because mm-hmm. curiosity is, is the spark uh, that gets the engine of imagination and so on going. Yeah. First, it's right. curiosity. Then your imagination works on it. 
And then your creativity is taking all of that and making it real, turning it into something valuable, useful, so on. Mm -hmm. So I began teaching those two as a, as a class together, about a 90 minute class together. So the new book, when it came time to do a book, I thought, well, I, the book I really want to do is the book version of Recapturing a Creative Spirit, not the title. Right. But that'll be a harder sell. Start with the brainstorming, the more practical, and mm -hmm. then the follow-up book, which is the book that's being finished now and that will come out soon, is this book, the title of which I will not tell you, only six humans alive, including me, know the title. The right. subtitle is when there's a contest on my Facebook sites now to help me do the subtitle. I think it's going to be Recapturing a Creative Spirit, something, 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 something. Right. Mm, sure. Find it, find, finding, finding your way back to Eden, or that's not it, but, you know, something. Something like that. In, right. in that in that world yeah very cool and then and the there'll be three winners always the number three it keeps coming back jen you're ruining us all um <laughs> they um <laughs> there will be three winners the the the, the uh, they'll all get a free copy of the new book um and but i ref, i reserve the right not to use your subtitle even if you're the winner so there nice. will be a winner um and i also reserve the right to play with you know the syntax and the Right. phraseology mm -hmm. of your words so you may be close to it but it's like when i speak at a convention and i get there and they know my keynote is recapturing your creative spirit and dictionary it's recapturing meaning yeah it's something that was there got away and you got it back now absolutely i think you should have four or five winners you can say my my four when my trilogy of four winners or my trilogy of five winners no, david just, you know, just for david, fun yes but three is a magic oh, that's number. true that is true but the thing yeah, is, is you're, you're you're already you're already ahead of me david i might i might in fact have four winners these four people are these four entries breaking news <laughs> mcnair this has been fantastic i have loved every single second of this and i feel like we could have again a three-hour episode we're going to break this up probably into two maybe even three episodes um well but, i'm honored to to be your first guest yes here on uh, on the a gaslight uh, Main Street Gaslight podcast, absolutely. <laughs> we uh, we appreciate you coming on with us, and uh, we, we we hope to to talk to you again sometime in the very near future because we do want to get to the club and the Dinosaurs Club, which I want to ask you about as well. Uh, which oh my I was gosh. told because I'm fascinated. I could like literally sit here and listen yes. to them all night. I, I kind of feel as if McNair is our, our our unofficial Disney historian for our for our show. So uh, can we, we adopt him? It, possibly, yeah. You know, the, yeah. Real, real quickly, for people who don't know, the Dinosaurs Club was a weekly lunch in Toluca Lake, which was just a little town in between Burbank and Glendale. Uh, right. Um, that all the old Disney Imagineers and and uh, animators, some still working, yeah. Claude Coates and the uh, Colin Campbell would go, mm -hmm. and you'd go, and there'd be four people there. There'd be when Frank and Ollie had a new book out. Um, you know, they did the art of animation and other books. Yeah. Right. And they would meet in a restaurant where there'd be a back room and there'd be 60 people there. And every single one of them was somebody famous. That's amazing. I mean, if they were alive, they were there from Ward <sighs> Kimball to you name it. And, um, and, and, and I won't start to name the names. But on a typical <laughs> day, there'd be six or eight or 10, 10 guys. Mm -hmm. And um, it's like the Dinosaurs Club was the real world version of Club 33. Everybody knew it existed. They knew the name mm. of it. They knew where it was. Right. You can't go. 
You That's can't. Amazing. It was in a public <laughs> place. You could go into that place and sit at a table across the room. And it was always in a place that had a full bar and a good menu and separate checks. Now, every guy at the table except me was a millionaire. And <laughs> any of them could have picked up the check for the whole table and not blinked. But they didn't because they never did from way back when. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. And the day I walked in and said, because I left Disney, I told you on a Friday, and that next Tuesday I went and I said, guys, I've left Imagineering. And they all held up their glasses to give me a toast. And I forget <laughs> who, it, who it was. It might have been Ken Anderson, art director on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. This is, okay. this is the late 1980s and 90s. And Ken Anderson was art director on a movie that came out in 1937. That's oh, crazy. And he sat at the head of the table. But um, that was, and we can go, we, we can get in that more, but I'll never forget the day that Claude Coates came over to my, and we became friends pretty quickly. Um, and I should tell you, you, make a note to ask me about finally meeting Claude Coates. Oh, that yes, that will day. definitely come up. Got it. Oh, that's going to come up. Yes. <laughs> and uh, anyway, he came into my office one of many times. He says, hey, say, uh, a bunch of my a bunch of my friends, we get together for lunch every once in a while. And I wonder if you'd like to join us next 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 week when we go. And I knew exactly what he was asking me for. And I was so nervous and so excited. I knew that if I said anything, it was going to be the wrong thing to say. I said, I'd love to. And they come to he and Colin Campbell came to pick me up at his office. And Colin also became a friend. Colin Campbell did all the sets for the original Mickey Mouse Club. Um, if you go back and find the original bird's wow. eye view painting of Disney MGM Studios before it was even begun, before right. he, he did that painting. That is amazing. He's lots, lots of lots. Oh. But just to sit at the table and listen to those guys, awesome. those guys talk. And kind of feeling like that Jen and I are sitting at this table listening to you talk. We're kind of the same thing going on here. Yes. I don't think it's in Hatch. I think it's in the E version of Hatch. Mm-hmm. Um, of uh, one snapshot that I did take one day of me at the table with some of the dinosaurs. That's awesome. McNair, <laughs> thank you so much. We're going to have you on again. You're welcome. And uh, we're just blow, blowing our minds. We, 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 we love you, buddy, and I hope to see you soon. Yeah. Thank you so well, much. Thanks for inviting me. I, I enjoyed it. All right, Jen, that is our conversation with McGarry Wilson. That's uh, love it. That was such a fun conversation too. It, I just it, remember like, I, I, I love Disney history and like we had yes. a couple, you know, a couple weeks ago. And of course we had McNair on for a few episodes now. It's just, mm-hmm. I love hearing about how things are developed and how things are done yeah. and, and the whole, the whole Mel Brooks aspect and Bancroft aspect. That was great. Um, you know, just, it's, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. It is. It's a ton of fun. So absolutely. Find us online at themsepodcast.com. It's our website. You can go there, find the show notes, see our wonderful faces, see friends of the show, and find their websites and all their information. Find McNair's information as well. Uh, as reported in the episode you just heard, he has a new book coming out, and I think at the time he thought it was going to be coming out a little faster. He was still waiting mm-hmm. for it. It's still coming, but good things do come to those who wait. Like my that's right. Um, that's right, Jen. So go <laughs> sign this paper. And so hmm. that's coming up as well. Of course, you've got, uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us at the MSC podcasts on Twitter, on Instagram, and all those social media type places. Jen, where can we find you online? On the interwebs. You can find me at upon a star Jen everywhere. And then also on the Insta 
at Jem underscore Novotny if you want to see aspects of my non-travel life, but also travel. There's really also not a everything. whole lot of non-travel life to your life. I mean, you're pretty much I mean, traveling most of the time. You might see like friends or like when I go out or like random pictures. Yeah. Friends My stories are like, funny. look at these sap friends. They're not traveling. I'm traveling, but they're not. What losers? <laughs> really kind of sad. Uh, well, no, sometimes you see like pterodactyls. Like I had a oh, great story true. about pterodactyls. That is true. So yeah, you found a pterodactyl flying. I found a pterodactyl. <laughs> I found a pterodactyl. Is this I a mean, pterodactyl? Yes, it, Jen. That's the one that, it, that survived 73 million years. <laughs> it looked like a pterodactyl. That's all. It looked like a pterodactyl. Everybody of blue hair and when it flies looks like a pterodactyl, in case you can. I will give you that. It did kind of look like a pterodactyl. It was It a looked a lot like a pterodactyl. Was it like and an you didn't see it in flight. Well, I saw the picture. I didn't see it in flight though. No, you didn't thing. see it in flight. Like so the one I saw up here, because we do have a blue hair in, in where, where like near where I live, but right. their legs go out behind and the way their feet are, it looks like a little tuft on a tail, and it looks like a long tail behind. Them. So honest to goodness, when you're, fl- and my friend texted me, she goes, I know exactly what that is because I was like, oh my gosh, is that a pterodactyl? I'm like, see, <laughs> see, it's not now, just me. Did you know how to spell pterodactyl or did you have to let Siri do it by typing in a few letters? I hope you got it right. I did. I remember like the first four letters. I was like, P T E R. And then, like, fortunately, Siri was like, gave me the suggestion. Siri's like, I got you, boo. I got you. Yeah. It doesn't do that for me. It'd be like, no, I'm not trying to spell psoriasis. I'm trying to spell pterodactyl. What the heck? <laughs> what, blue hair is a bird. Is that right? You, you blue, blue heron. Yeah, it's blue a bird. Blue heron. Okay. You said blue heron. I was thinking like a grandmother community or something. No, heron. H E R O N. That makes sense. Blue heron. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have a magical moment, Jen? I do have a magical moment. Okay. So actually, this is a magical moment from Agent Heather. Um, and she experienced this, actually, she sort of provided this magical moment herself. And Disney is a great place for celebrations. I think everybody knows that. Disney is super into celebrations. Well, she decided to adopt a little girl from China. And she, she'd been wanting um, a, a daughter forever. And just for various reasons, you know, just hadn't come to pass. Right. right, right. Right. So she finally had gotten approved, you know, and for the adoption and everything. Well, her parents didn't know. So they all went down to Disney and she told them on main street, right in the middle of main street, actually in Disneyland, not Disney world in 2012. And she sort of surprised them with a, like a special little moment saying, you're going to have a granddaughter and, you know, with the adoption date and everything. So in this case, she made a magical moment for her family. And that is such a great thing. I love when people can do that. That's fantastic. I I love making the magical moments and, you know, there's, I mean, you as a travel agent as well, you know, I know we've done like proposals and we've Mm -hmm. done different celebrations and surprises and things like that. And I love getting pictures from clients going, hey, it worked perfectly. And she said yes, sir. He said yes, Mm -hmm. sir. Love it. Love that stuff. Yeah. So find us online. Of course, you can find all the pictures that I just posted because I just got back from Disney World when you're hearing this episode. And I hope you enjoyed our interview with McNair. Listen to us next week as well. We'll come up with something uh, to talk about Disney Wise because that's just who we are and we love to talk. Jen, thank you for being on the show again, and uh, we want you guys to have a great week. Be nice to each other. Spread that pixie dust everywhere. And hey, don't forget, thank a Phoenician. Thank you for listening to the Main Street Electrical Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The MSE Podcast. Or visit our website at themsepodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe. 
And may all your wishes come true.